I'm good at being comfortable, being scared and just doing things anyway. People will tell me I'm fearless. And I'm like, no, that's not it at all. I'm scared of everything all the time. I just am comfortable sitting in that fear and doing it anyway. Welcome to the Self-Starter Podcast, a place where stories are shared from women, just like you, who left the colorless corporate world with an idea and a passion and ran with it to create the vibrant life they always wanted to live. My name is Megan Tobler, and every week I'll be bringing real women to you to share their entrepreneurial journey in hopes of inspiring you to take the very first step of your own. Sometimes the hardest part is just to start. So come on, start today for you, start today for her, and become a self-starter. Let's go. Today, we meet Amelia Wilcox, the remarkable founder of Navati, who ignited her entrepreneurial journey out of a deep passion for wellness. With unwavering determination, she bootstrapped her company until securing a crucial grant. And when faced with the challenges of COVID, she displayed remarkable adaptability and resilience by pivoting her business. In our chat, we discuss how she embodies the ethos of never allowing fear to hinder her pursuit of success, how and why she made specific pivots in her business, and how she is involving her children in her entrepreneurial endeavors. If you've ever needed a little inspiration to push through the fear of starting something of your own, then this episode is for you. Amelia, thank you so much for hopping on today and joining the Self-Starter Podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Me too. Now, today you're the founder and CEO of Navati. But prior to Navati, you were in the health and wellness industry for about 15 years. So before we actually dive into Navati, I was curious just to better understand your backstory to what led you to where you are today. Yeah. So I have just always been into wellness. Like my first job was at the YMCA in Kansas city. And I started doing like fitness classes and then I wanted to teach fitness classes. I got my aerobics instructor certification. And then I went to the university of Utah. I studied exercise physiology and nutrition. I didn't finish my degree, so I did not graduate, but loved learning about like dietary supplements and food and then like the biology and anatomy. I just, I've always loved like everything having to do with the human body really. And then I went into massage therapy school. And after that, I started kind of my own private practice. And I did that for about eight years. And then I said, Hey, I want to take massage therapy, like bigger than I can do with my own clients, in my own office, because you're kind of maxed out, right? You can only do like four or five massages a day. So yeah, I just wanted to get this therapy in front of people that had really helped me. I had struggled with uh, chronic headaches ever since I was young. Um, and when I found massage, I was like, oh, this is awesome because they were tension headaches. So it was just like neck tension. And it was like a super healing thing for me that was kind of life-changing. And I was like, oh, I want to do this for everybody and help people. And so I decided I wanted to bring massage into the workplace. And I started a company called Incorporate Massage in 2010. And we would come in with massage chairs and massage their employees as part of their employee benefits and grew that company over 10 years, grew to 6 million in revenue. We had about 4,000 companies that we worked with all over North America. Intel was our biggest account at eight of their locations every single day across the U.S. We just had full-time massage therapists on staff everywhere all the way down to just like tiny little offices of like four people <laughs> we would send a massage therapist in. So yeah, it was going really, really well. We built our own tech platform in 2016. And then uh, that just kind of allowed companies to just go to our website, 
put in whatever they wanted, the date, the time, how many therapists, how long the massages would be, you know, chair or table, et cetera. And then they could just book through the website without having to talk to a salesperson. And then all of our staffing was automated. So like massage therapists would get a text message saying, Hey, there's a job. Are you available to work it? They could respond via text and then they just show up. Um, So we built this tech platform and it automated the entire process. And then I remember opening up my email one day and just seeing this email for this tech pitch competition. And we had always been like a services company. It was all human-based. And now we had this technology that allowed us to scale and automate a lot of our internal operations and then also automate the sales of the services we were providing. So I was like, maybe we qualify as tech. But in my head, I'm like, we're still not really a tech company. We're really a services company. But I was like, I'm going to try anyway. I just felt compelled. Like, I'm going to go pitch at this competition. So I put together my deck of how this technology was going to create like new revenue for us and all of these things. And I I just remember being in this room with, there were like six or seven investors. They were all men. They were all white. (laughs) Uh, They were all probably in their forties and maybe early fifties. I pitched my little heart out. And we ended up winning a $100,000 grant for our platform, which was awesome. And with that, the requirements to get the money was that you had to raise matching funds. And so I had to go out and figure out how to raise another $100,000 to get that $100,000. And so I was like, all right, well, I've never raised money before. You know, this is eight years into the incorporate massage journey. We'd always been bootstrapped. We were profitable. And so I was like, oh, this will be fun. It's a new skill. Like I've never learned how to do that. It would be really cool to go to investors. You know, like I watch Shark Tank, like (laughs) this will be great. And so I worked with my board to put together the pitch deck for the fundraise and which was kind of similar to what I pitched for the grant. And then I just started meeting with the angel investors, just getting introductions. Um, Most local cities have their own angel groups. So I pitched to Salt Lake City Angels, Park City Angels, Reno has an angel group. I pitched to them ended up getting a bunch of investors. We raised 335,000. So it was like way more than what I expected to raise for that first fundraise. And then I had to figure out how to put the money to work. And so we grew and we actually grew very aggressively with that funding. And then in 2019, went back to fundraise again with angels. Cause now it was like, oh, I know that every dollar we spend in AdWords, we get $4 in revenue. So let's put more money into the engine. And so we raised 600,000 in angel funding in 2019. And then with that money, the goal was also to take the platform that we had built and to expand it. Because if you remember pre-COVID, everybody was bringing all these services on site for employees. So everything was like, bring it to the office, chiropractor, dental cleanings, you know, aesthetics and nails for like employee spa days that they were doing on site. And we had all these partners. So people would ask us for yoga, meditation, all sorts of things. People would ask us, we're like, well, we don't do that, but we have these partners that do. So we already had these connections. And I thought like, let's add to our platform, the ability to bring in any services. We can plug our partners in and it'll be this kind of marketplace for on-site services, which hadn't really been done before. And I was super excited. So that's where we raised the 600,000 for And then we were like 75% of the way through that build. And then COVID hit in March of 2020. So we went from 6 million to zero in about 10 days and just watched like all the cancellations come in and just like everything disappeared. But while revenue went down to nothing, our support requests went like through the roof. So we had all of this support needs for answering phones, responding to emails and 
because at first people didn't know it was going to last a while. They were just like, oh, we need to reschedule this to like next week or to next month. So it's just a lot of rescheduling. And then they'd call back and reschedule again. And some of them rescheduled like three or four times. And then it was like, oh, this is going to be a semi-permanent. We don't really know. So we had all these needs for our internal team to handle all that that was coming in. We had no revenue. I had to furlough everyone who wasn't basically handling support. So it was like me and my head of operations and she was handling the old business support stuff. And then I was just going out and I was like, we can't wait this out. My board actually had me put together a forecast of like, what if massage doesn't come back from COVID? I remember thinking it was ridiculous. <laughs> like, of course it will. And I thought it was kind of a waste of time. They wanted a like a six week and a three month and a six month forecast of like, if just all revenue operations stopped, like how long could the company last? And like, what would we do? What would we cut? So it was kind of crazy. It was a combination of a lot of things. We basically just stopped paying all of our bills. The board was like, don't pay anything and furloughed everyone on the entire team. And, you know, my VP of ops was working for stock. So I wasn't paying her. We had no money. We had like 300 grand still left. And it was just like, we had to protect that because it was like, we have to figure out that funding is to like figure out how we're going to solve for what the future of the company is going to look like. So yeah, that is the big pivot moment. <laughs> it's like, we were like, okay, we don't know if it's coming back. And now the math is telling us like, okay, your company will last this long and we have no clients to serve because nobody was bringing massage into the office at all. It's gone. Wow. Before we talk about the actual pivot that COVID brought about, I want to highlight just a few things because your entire business started out as a passion project. You really loved fitness and wellness. And then you got into massage therapy because you were facing something personally with the tension headaches and really found that they were able to help yourself. And then through that grew your own practice and then thought about expanding that even larger and bringing that into the workplace. So I have to ask you, had you always had like an entrepreneurial itch or was this something that you just kind of fell into through passion? I had always kind of been like that. I grew up with a dad that just told me that I could do anything and was always encouraging me to find ways to make money. So I just believed it. I was just like, oh yeah, of course I can do anything because that's what my dad always told me. <laughs> I have no reason to doubt it. So I was really lucky in that way that I just didn't grow up seeing all these walls that I think a lot of other women are raised believing are there. So I was kind of oblivious and naive, I would say, to start out with. But yeah, I, I remember one of the first things I did is my dad got these giant cookies for like wholesale. And I think they cost us like 50 cents. And so I would buy a bunch of them for my dad. And then I would take them to school and sell them for a dollar. And I had quite a little profitable business going for a while. And then the school shut us down because <laughs> they didn't want anyone competing with their like vending machines and like selling chips and all that kind of stuff. And they told me I couldn't sell them at school anymore. And then I remember one winter, uh, me and my mom and my brother made handmade Christmas cards and we went and sold them door to door in our neighborhood. Just lots of little things like that. I helped my mom with like a root beer float stand that we set up at Walmart and she was working at Walmart. So it was actually like part of her job as like this promotions director role that she had. But I was just like, oh, we can just like set up a shop and sell root beer floats and people will buy them. And like just always kind of having little experiences like that. And even when my husband and I were newlyweds, we had found there's like a discount store here where it's just like a lot of merchandise that maybe the boxes got damaged or whatever. And we would go there and we would buy things and we would resell them on eBay. So we were doing that for a while. 
Then my husband and I started an online store selling outdoor gear because he worked for the biggest wholesale distributor of outdoor gear in the U.S. here in Utah. And so he got a wholesale account because he was an employee. And so I was like, well, I'll build a website thinking it would be really easy. It was actually a lot of work to get the website up and running. And I had to enlist a lot of friends and hire a company for the e-commerce side and things like that. But I learned a ton. So yeah, we set up this kind of like backcountry.com type of store back in this like 2005. And we ran that until the market crashed in 2008. And then it was like, nobody was buying tents and backpacks and things like that. So we just had this garage full of, I remember like you couldn't park a car in there. It was just full of sleeping bags, tents, coats, just outdoor gear. And so then we were selling all of that on eBay for less than we bought it for. We were left with just a ton of debt because we had used like student loans and things like that, like credit cards and things to purchase all of the stuff we were trying to sell. Then I said, the next business I start, I'm not interested in it having like crazy overhead, like a retail store, um, which is why I thought massage was perfect. So I was like, oh, it's service-based. We're only paying someone when we're getting paid. And like, I can scale that. This is kind of what led me, I guess, from young elementary school age through <laughs> adulthood. Sounds like your parents were really instrumental in the development of your entrepreneurial itch here. And you had mentioned something about you never had those walls that were put up and that were limiting you from really kind of moving forward and going after what you want. And I think you shared an example about when you went to pitch your services to be able to win a hundred grand. I think a lot of women probably wouldn't have done that because as you mentioned, you were more of a services-based business rather than a tech business. So you could have let that stop you from actually moving forward and really getting the funding that was needed to really take you to that next level, but you didn't. So what kind of was going through your head when you decided, you know what? Yeah, I don't check all the boxes, but I'm going to move forward anyways, because I think that's where a lot of women specifically get stuck. I 100% agree with that in the other female entrepreneurs that I know in the research that's out there too, just showing that men are like, uh, if I'm like part of the way there, like I'm going for it. Whereas women are like, I have to check every box or I'm not going to do it. Like we don't want to put ourselves out there because it could be embarrassing or, you know, shameful or whatever. I don't, I don't really know what drives it, but yeah. So what was going through my head? I see this email and I'm just like, well, we do have a tech product and I, I can't imagine what I would do with a hundred grand. And I just felt like I should do it. I was just like, it's a new experience. I've never done anything like this before. I want to learn how to pitch and speak to investors. And I just thought I would give it a go, but I was way out. Like, I remember I was sweating. I was nervous. My hands were shaking. I was like scared out of my mind. And I get there and it's like all men that are pitching. This is actually like the first time I really experienced sexism too, because I was sitting in the waiting room and I was sitting on a chair. And this other guy was sitting on a couch and he was on the far end and they were perpendicular to each other. And we're having a conversation and another guy walks in and he sits between us with his back toward me and just kind of takes over the conversation, talking to the guy like I'm not even there. And then I like fun stockings. (laughs) So I'm wearing these cute stockings and they've got like a fun pattern on them. And later the guy's like, oh, hi, I'm so-and-so and like turns and talks to me. And I'm just like, whoa, that guy totally just acted like it wasn't here and took over my conversation, but it's fine. And he turns to me and he looks at my, my stockings and he's like, oh, what are your stockings selling today? And I was just like, I don't even know how to respond to that. And so I just told him like what my company did. And then he went back to talking to the other guy and then it was my turn. So I stand up, like I said, cute stockings. And I love to wear red heels. I do a lot of public speaking. So they're kind of like my lucky red heels. I feel like and it's just, it's what makes me feel kind of confident. I think you got to lean into what makes you feel comfortable and strong. And so I stand up and he looks at me and he's like, 
if you win today, it'll be because of those red heels. And I think it was just trying to be friendly, but is like totally oblivious to how like demeaning that is, you know, to say, oh, you can't win because you have an amazing product or because you're smart or because you're strong or any of those like, well, it's because you're wearing heels and stockings and, you know. So I went in there like really uncomfortable where I'm like, well, I'm out of my league. I don't, I don't even know how to respond to this guy because no one's ever talked to me like that. And I'm totally confused. And luckily I had a really amazing, strong female mentor at the time. She's actually on my board today. She's amazing. And she's worked in the tech industry for a long time. So in the services industry, I just didn't come across this at all. But moving into tech where it's primarily male dominated, there aren't very many women. It's much better now than it was, you know, five or six years ago, but still a huge disparity. So I was able to jump on a call with her and just be like, this is what I experienced. I don't like, what do you say? Do you get pissed off? Do you tell them they're a jerk? Do you just ignore it? You know, There's not a handbook for this. What's a woman supposed to do? And she, she gave me just the greatest advice. And she said to just kind of ask curious questions back to them because shaming them in front of other people will make them defensive. And then you look like the jerk, right? And she's like, you just say, oh, that's interesting. What did you mean by that? Or why would you say that? Not in a mean way, but just kind of pushing it back on them to force them to introspect a little bit. Like, well, why did I say that? What did I mean by that? Um, and get them thinking about it and in a way that doesn't make them defensive. And so that's been great because I've taken that with me my whole career. But I don't know. I'm just terrified all the time is what I would say. I'm good at being comfortable, being scared and just doing things anyway. People will tell me like I'm fearless. And I'm like, no, that's not it at all. I'm scared of everything all the time. I just am comfortable sitting in that fear and doing it anyway. But I still feel it all the time. <laughs> You're human. I think that's normal. But the difference between you and someone else is that you don't let the fear stop you from moving forward. And going back to what you were saying with the guy that was commenting on your tights first and then the other guy with the shoes, well, joke's on them because you won that competition and then you went on to triple that amount in funding on your own. And you are able to create this thriving business. Unfortunately, COVID obviously had other plans. But it sounded like it obviously allowed you to start thinking, how can we really pivot during this time to be able to survive? I know you mentioned that COVID was the huge pivotal moment for your business. So what kind of happened next? Yeah. So, I mean, I sat down with every VP of HR that we had worked with here in Utah and just asked for their time to answer. I had like a million questions. It's just like, what are your employees struggling with now? Like, what would you be willing to pay for? We have this idea and this idea, like, because a lot of these clients had credits with us where they prepaid for a bunch of massage services. And so I was like, if we have to pay back these credits, we're legit bankrupt. So we have to find some other service we can provide instead. So we can at the very least keep the cash that we have on hand. So that was total survival mode. I'm just like, what else can we do? So I sent out a survey to all of our massage therapists. We had about 1200 and I asked them what other services they could provide. There was a variety of things that you could do virtually over Zoom. So I came up with yoga instructors, um, personal trainers. We had a couple of registered dietitians, people that could run like meditation sessions. And I put together six services and I just threw them to our clients and said, hey, if we offered this instead of massage, you know, it's kind of like a one for one, right? Let your employees book personalized one-on-one -on -one yoga with a real yoga instructor to improve their practice. And like an hour of that's equivalent to an hour of massage that they paid for. We had like four or five clients who let us do that for them, which I'm so grateful for because then we were able to kind of learn from that and experiment and iterate. But I quickly realized like that was not going to work as far as pivoting the company into just like virtual one-on-one -on -one wellness services. Right? And we were doing some group services too, but the group services, it was like, 
you could have 300 people in there and you're not going to charge 300 hours worth of time for having 300 people in there. The expectation is that that price point is going to be way lower than it would be for the one-on-one sessions, even though it's higher, you know, than one person's one-on-one session. You're not going to see like 300 people in a session is like 300 hours and so much money. It was just like the math didn't work out. I was like, this isn't going to work. And I figured that out pretty quickly. So one of the things, there were two things that started happening while we're in the middle of this experiment with these handful of Utah companies. And the first thing that happened is we're doing these group sessions, we're doing yoga meditation, and these clients keep asking like, Hey, can, can you record it? Can we keep the recording? We want to put it like in our intranet. So our employees can go back and like do this meditation again. It's like one of our resources. And so I was like, well, that's interesting. That's come up multiple times. And so I thought, well, let's use a little bit of money that we have, buy some home video kits, send them to these like 12 providers that we had identified that could provide these six other services. And let's just see if we can get them to start making content. We'll throw it up in a, in a content management system and I'll see if I can sell it as like us really starting to move toward being more of an actual platform and less of a services company too. I felt like it was a long shot, but yeah, we did that. And I think we set off 10 or 12 video kits. Then at the same time, we did have some of our massage therapists who were life coaches and they started coming to me and they were like, um, the people I'm talking to really need therapy and they're experiencing anxiety and depression, like suicidal thoughts. And like, I'm a life coach. I do not have that education. We need someone to refer them to. So I started getting on the phone with all these clinics here in Utah and just asking them if they could take our referrals. Like, Hey, we have like three or four people right now that need some therapy can we just at least push them to you? So like, we're doing our job to make sure they're getting what they need, but it hadn't yet occurred to me that we could fulfill this ourselves. I was just looking for a partner. I just wanted to do the right thing for the people that needed the help. But I was like, I'm not in the mental health space. I can't do that. Let's get experts that can. And so what I found after call after call was everyone was like, no, we're backed up for months. Like we have no bandwidth. We can't help you at all. And I was like, really? (laughs) It's just like money. You don't even have to pay for it, but they they just didn't have enough hours to take care of the clients they already had. And so that's really when I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's a shortage of therapists or if we could do this ourselves, because we do have a background in scaling service providers, right? It's just a different kind of therapist (laughs) instead of massage. It's like mental health. And like, we already know how to do that. We've been doing that for 10 years. We know how to hire in different states. So I brought my recruiting team back from furlough and I said, okay, guys, We're going to target this type of a provider instead of the massage therapist providers we had before. Let's just see if there are any out there. And uh, we were able to hire like five or six right off the bat. And so I have these two products. I'm like, all right, we've got like this limited content that I'm going to try and sell. And then we've got this access to therapy I'm going to try to sell. What was interesting is that our like existing massage clients, you would think they would just be like, oh, cool. Yeah, I want to do that. But they still just thought of us as a massage company. It's like, Our first clients were all new, new clients. I think in the end, we only converted three companies we worked with to the new version of the company post pivot. But most of them, it was just like, no, you're a massage company. It didn't convert the way I thought it would have converted, which was a bummer because I was like, oh, we have all these clients we've worked with. It should be easy to say like, and now we do this service. And they're going to be like, yay, we loved you before and we love you now. And here's our money. That's not what happened. So I started selling the therapy piece and we closed our first account. October of 2020 was when they launched. And then at the same time, in like August of 2020, I closed my first client on the content side. So I was like, okay, well, both are viable. We have a client in each. 
And so I just kept selling both. And then when we got to about five or six clients, that's when I said, no, the brilliant idea here is to combine both. Like, how about we provide a mental health solution that has all of these proactive care components to it? Because my background is in wellness, right? Like, how do we prevent people from going to crisis in the first place and help them once they get there? So that was just like this brilliant idea. And I was just like, oh, this is the greatest idea ever. I think it's going to be awesome. And so we kind of merged those two together. And that's the beginning of like what the product is now, right? Where we're this multidimensional mental health solution that addresses six dimensions of mental health. And I thought it was awesome. We developed like our own proprietary, basically wheel of wellness, right? That we were going to like trademark and we go to trademark it. And my marketing guy is like, well, I got good news and bad news. (laughs) He's like, the bad news is we can't trademark it. Because it already exists. He's like, but the good news is it was developed by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services through a division called SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And they've already done all the research and it's legit. He's like, it's a legit approach. So our platform is basically based on their research backed model that they develop. Um, And we leverage that to inform what we put into the platform. So that's crazy. So yeah, once we got to our five or six clients, We were about out of money, but I was like, no, this is working. We have people paying for it. Their employees are using it. And the first iteration was so ugly. Like the platform was ugly. The content was horrible because you still couldn't film anything in person. So it was like people that have never filmed themselves before. And like the light is too bright and their faces widened out. Or like there's an echo. It was terrible quality, but people were using it. So then I was like, all right, I think we've got enough to go back out and raise money again. So I go back to Angel's. And that was the other thing that was interesting. The angels that invested in the new version of the business were not our pre-existing angels. I expected them all to be excited and like, yeah, we'll give you more money. But it was like all new angels, but all the new angels were much bigger checks, which was awesome. So I actually didn't have to like bring in as many investors. Instead of collecting like $20,000 checks, I was collecting like 50 and $100,000 checks, which made it so much easier. But yeah, we had five or six clients and we closed 800,000 in angel funding And that was like January of 2021 that that closed. And then we had our little seed money. We also got PPP funding. I think we got like 1.3 million because all of our massage therapists were W2 employees. And so we got that cash and it was almost all forgiven. I think we only had to pay like a hundred thousand of it back. So we just had an influx of cash thanks to the government and fundraising. And I was just like, okay, here's seed money. We basically raised like a $2 million seed round, but 1.3 million was non-dilutive. We also got employee retention credits, which added to the bank account. And then we were off to the races and started building a team, an executive team around it and just trying to get more clients. And then got to about 50 or 60 clients and raised 4 million in venture funding, which was my first time doing venture. Brought on some awesome investors who really saw a lot of potential in what we were doing with our solution and closed that in March of last year. And so there you go. That's that's the journey. I feel like I need to like pick my job off the floor right now, just because it's so incredible what you've been able to do. I have to ask because I know you started the original massage company and then you went through this massive pivot. Did you completely start a new company with Navati or did you decide to rebrand? We rebranded because in the beginning, it was like, we weren't really sure was massage going to come back or like, was this the future of the company? So we kind of just left massage there and we didn't promote it at all. But little by little, some of our old clients were starting to come in office again and they were starting to want massage in the office again. But it was still 
even at its height, because we actually just sold it, <laughs> sold the massage assets off to the employees that helped build it, which was an amazing experience to be able to do that. But even at its height, it was still 10% of pre-COVID revenue. It was just like, this is not something that we can scale because the market's just not there anymore. It's a great little lifestyle business at the size that it is right now, but it wasn't something like venture investable. And we were now venture funded <laughs> as of last year. So yeah, we kept them both. We rebranded and then just the last like four or five months has just been going through the process of finding a buyer and offboarding all of the assets. So technically the entity of Novati Inc. right now is the same entity that I started in 2010, but we removed the massage portion of the business. So it's kind of like a new startup, but legally, uh, no, it's all the same company. <laughs> And, and you said something else earlier too, that you sold the first client. So I think that's something really important to highlight because obviously you had people helping you along the way, but with COVID happening and then the furloughs, you've been super, super hands-on in the business from initial conception all the way. I mean, you're still super hands-on from our conversations. As someone that's the CEO of the company, like why is it so important for you to really be able to be as hands-on as you are? Well, I think no one's going to be able to sell it better than the founders. So if you can't sell it, you don't have a business is the way I look at it. And so anytime we're doing anything, I want to vet it out myself first, figure out what that process needs to look like, and then hand it off to a team to take over. I mean, it's the same thing I did with the massage business. I started selling it all myself. Then we got our first salesperson and they were part-time. Then we moved them to full-time and then like... I went on vacation and that was the first time that I was like, well, I'm not going to be in sales. And once I handed the reins fully to a sales rep to sell massage, I didn't go back. And I was like, okay, I'm never selling massage again. I will coach the team. I'll help the team. But now we have like a sales team that's going to do it. And so same process here. It's just like, I'm going to figure out how to sell it, how to navigate like those conversations, overcome objections. What am I seeing? Who are the competitors? Right. So I'll just take that first pass at it. But that's one of the things I've learned is no one's ever going to be as passionate about it as you are. So you have to figure out how to do it first. And then if they can do it even 50% as good as you, you're winning. I agree. And that's something I respect about you so much. I mean, I didn't mention this when we first started, but you and I met because I actually went through the interview process with your company and I immediately was drawn to Navadi because of your story. I love that you were a female founder. I love that you were so involved and so passionate about your business. I mean, obviously I enjoy the mission and what you're all about, but essentially you were the one that brought me to the business because I just resonated with what you were doing and the passion behind what you're doing so much. And that comes across in the conversation today. And it was coming across in our interview experience. And anyways, I had to throw that in just because I think that it's clear based on our conversation today, just how passionate you are and how driven you are to be able to make a change in this world. So thank you so much for what you're doing, because I mean, now you said you've brought on at this point, is it 50 to 60 clients or do you have more than that? Um, yeah, right now we're at around 100 clients. Yeah, 100 clients. And then just think about all the people, the employees at these clients that you're going to be able to impacting. So multiply that by at least 100 per company. Like that's a lot of people that you're being able to touch on, on a daily basis here. It's 21,000 right now. 21,000 <laughs> people. Oh my goodness. All because you started with an initial passion for fitness and wellness and you decided to run with it. But here we are 13 years after you found an incorporated massage. What has kind of been the biggest lesson that you have gained throughout these last 13 years? 
biggest lesson is just you can't do it alone. Um, everybody needs mentors and advisors. Ask for help. I think most women are they don't want to put somebody out or whatever. You have to do the ask. It's the same with sales, right? You have to say like, hey, are we going to do this deal, right? Instead of kind of dancing around it. So yeah, my biggest advice is get a really good advisory board. Find mentors in the areas that you're weak who can help you and like ask for their help. One of the things that I have learned that I'm good at that I just took for granted, I just thought everybody did, um, but I have since learned they do not. Um, if there's somebody where I want to learn more about what they have to say, I just walk right up to them and I ask them if I can take them out to lunch. And they always say yes. <laughs> so you take someone out to lunch, you ask them all the questions, learn as much as you can from them. You can't do it alone. There's so much out there that you don't know. If you ask people for help, people are generally good and they want to help you. You just have to ask. And who can turn down a free lunch too? Free lunch and great conversation. Yeah, exactly. You had mentioned the key is getting great advisory board mentors and hires. I think that's a, a really critical component of the success is being able to bring on the right people. So how have you really made sure that you are bringing on the right people from the start? Yeah. So it's funny because my team was actually joking about this the other day when we were all together. They were all telling their stories of how Amelia got them to join the team. <laughs> and oh, I was laughing so hard because they were like, hey, she did the same thing to me. Oh my gosh. So my kind of MO is like, I will put together a LinkedIn message that I will send to like everyone I'm connected to just saying like, hey, and I'll mention something about our success. Like, oh, we just closed a $4 million funding round. We're looking for a VP of marketing. Do you know anyone who might be a good fit, right? And I I feel like it's not that tricky of <laughs> a thing that I'm doing, but they thought it was pretty funny. And so then, yeah, the person will be like, oh, yeah, I, actually, I, I'd love a conversation, right? And so you're not directly saying like, hey, I'm trying to recruit you. And I am totally open to connections. If they're really happy in their job, like they'll send me connections, but they're people that like, I know. So like my CTO, he actually used to be my neighbor like 15 years ago. And I was connected to him on LinkedIn and he saw the opportunity and he was like, actually, I'd love to learn more about that. That sounds super exciting. And, you know, he's been with me for two or three years now, and then got my VP marketing the same way. We've known each other for oh probably like eight years, um, just professionally through marketing organization. And then he was like, oh yeah, this actually sounds really exciting. And he came on that way. But ultimately, if you ask any of my team members, it's that they believe in the vision and they believe in me. And so they're jumping on the train because they think that I can take them where they need to go, or I have something unique. They've seen the pivot I've been through, I think, because these are people that I've known longer and they trust that like whatever comes up, I'm going to be able to navigate it. I feel like there's a lot of trust and a lot of pressure on me. So I do tell them all the time. I'm like, yeah, I mean, we could be out of business in 10 months. <laughs> this is how much money we have. <laughs> so, but we'll try our best. So I think there's a couple things. I think one, everyone is like passionate about the problem we're trying to solve and making a difference in the world. And so we attract a ton, especially of millennial applicants, because that generation is very passionate and the Gen Zers, right? About like wanting to do something that matters, not just having a job for a job's sake. So we attract a lot of applicants because we are trying to solve a problem that is very personal to like everyone on the planet. Everybody has either experienced challenges with mental health or has someone close to them that has. So having a purpose and a mission that matters. Also, I leverage my team members to attract other team members, right? Like I'm like, oh, 
we just uh, attracted a new head of product. And I knew that putting him with our CTO, our CTO would help seal the deal because this is a person he's going to work with. And I know like our CTO sees our organization and sees me in a certain light. And like what he says is going to help seal the deal. I'll strategically get them in front of different executives that I think are going to bring the perspective and let them help sell it. But yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question? It absolutely does. It's not only just about them believing in the mission. It's all about the people business. People attract people and they're obviously attracted to you and they believe in what you're doing. And like you said, they saw the pivot that you went through in 2020 and that you came out on top because a lot of businesses, I was a part of a company that tanked during COVID. They didn't make it. I mean, you were able to recognize that there was still opportunity in the market and look at where you are today. I mean, you are helping 21,000 people. That's amazing. And with that, you were also featured from what I saw on the 40 under 40 and on the Inc. 5000 list. How did you get featured on that? Because that's incredible feature right there. Well, (laughs) uh, both of those were when we were still a massage business. We were in the Inc. 5000 two years in a row, but it's always recognized the year after. So it was like the first year we had pivoted. We were on the Inc. 5000, but it was really for the prior year's revenue. So it's kind of weird because yeah, it's always a year delayed, but that was all for massage. It's just based on growth rate. And yeah, 40 under 40 was also when we were a massage company, we just apply for like all the awards and then you can see like behind me, there are many of them, but um, you just apply for all of them. Have a good head of marketing that just like gets you on everyone. The last one we won actually was uh, the Women Tech Council here in Utah, the Shatter List, which is for companies that are helping women shatter the glass ceiling, which was super awesome. And I didn't even know we had applied for it. I just got the notification we were selected because my VP of marketing, they just have a process and they just apply for everything. And then you'll get some stuff. Well, and I think that goes back to when you put yourself in for the competition for that pitch back when you won a hundred grand. If you don't go for it, Nothing's going to happen. So why not just put yourself out there? The worst thing that can happen is they say, no, you move on. And something else I want to talk about just really briefly is that you're also a mom to three girls. And I think that what you're doing right now is so inspiring because they're able to see you in action. So how are you really kind of molding them on their own to kind of understand what it takes to be an entrepreneur in today's market? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say... It's undetermined if any of my kids want to be an entrepreneur yet. (laughs) They've also seen how much hard work it is, but also how much freedom it gives you in other areas. So I'll say like with my oldest, she's 18. She's been working at booths with me, helping with sales since she was 14. So every year, once or twice a year, she comes down. She's part of our sales team. And it's actually awesome because people come by the booth and they will totally talk to her because she's a kid. And I'm like, she's getting good experience. She's putting herself out there. She's learning how to like sell. I think sales is such a critical skill for like any job you're going to have. And just for life in general, that if my kids are open to it, I'm like, yeah, let's get you in front of people. So my oldest has been doing it for four years. My middle daughter turns 15 tomorrow, actually. So she's been coming with me as well since she was about 13. So she's done it for a couple of years now, doing the same kind of thing. And I actually took her to San Francisco for an HR conference around benefits. And there was this like one broker I really wanted to meet. And I knew he was there and he was the head of this brokerage that served tech companies, venture-backed tech companies, which is kind of our prime client pre Pre uh, venture capital being frozen earlier this year. Anyways, so I was this one guy I wanted to meet. He came up to our booth and he engaged with my daughter. 
And as soon as I found out who he was, I was like, oh my gosh, that's the guy like I wanted to meet. And so, and she handled it really well and taught my girls, like you just walk up to people and you're just like, hey, can I ask you a question or whatever? No, don't wait for them to come to you. You can just walk right up to people and ask them, hey, this is what we're doing. You want to hear more about it? Or you want to get a free massage, right? Like we'd have a massage at the booth and just giving them those skills. And then my youngest is 11. She's not quite ready yet, but she is chomping at the bit to go. And then I've hired them for little projects. My oldest daughter obviously can drive. So I'll have her like send stuff off to the post office or whatever. But yeah, you can kind of hire them and loop them in. And then they have a little bit of work experience on their resumes for getting jobs. And they have some sales experience. But oh, my youngest daughter also, this is her second summer doing what has been branded as Cookie Girls Cookie Stand. (laughs) There's even a a specific corner in our neighborhood. She calls Cookie Girl Corner. (laughs) And uh, they will go out probably twice a month and sell cookies and fresh squeezed lemonade to the passersby. And last year they made $450 in one six hour day. (laughs) So they have done very well for themselves. And so, yeah, just like whatever it is that they want to do, I'll help them figure out how to do it and, you know, see what they can do. I think just getting out there and recognizing your own strength. I think that's something that we all need to do and need help with. It's like, once you take that leap and you realize this is something you can actually do, like you recognize your own power. And I think we all have that. It's just, you got to open it up. Yeah. And it also sounds like you're teaching them to not be afraid of being afraid. Cause I know at the very beginning, you were saying that you still have the fear, but you don't let it stop you from moving forward. And I think seeing a mom like yourself and you are being the role model to them. That's a really great lesson to be able to work through the fears and not let it hold you back from really living out your dream. Yeah, definitely. When I'm traveling for work, I will try to take one of them with me on any business trip. So even this last trip I did, it was a VC event and one of my VCs was there and he was like, oh, He's like, I'm kind of disappointed you didn't bring your daughters because even like at my closing meetings, when I was fundraising, I brought one of my daughters to like these meetings and I was like, this is my 14 year old daughter. She's with me today, blah, blah, blah. And it was like something they had never seen before. The VCs that I ended up picking, they actually have daughters like four or five years older than my daughters. And so I think that was really powerful for them. And I think that's something that they really liked about me. So he was telling me this last trip, he's like, I'm so disappointed you didn't bring your daughter with you because I was really excited to introduce her to people. I'm like, oh yeah, she was actually with me. She just didn't come to the event because we had family close by, but she wanted to hang out with them. But it's funny. So even thinking like you can't bring your kids into some of these experiences is limiting. And that was kind of ballsy of me, I feel like, to bring them to a meeting with an investor that was interested in closing that I hadn't closed yet. And just kind of taking a stand and being like, yep, I try to take one of my girls with me everywhere so they can learn and have these experiences. And they've never been to a meeting with a VC and heard like the questions that are asked. And I mean, it was a powerful experience for my daughter too. It was pretty cool. So that goes back to what we were talking about too, about making sure that you're bringing on the right people. And that also goes all the way up to the VCs. You want to make sure that you're working with great people. And that has really ultimately led to the success of the company is that you have surrounded yourself with such an amazing community of people that believe in you, believe in the mission. And clearly those red heels have done some good for you as well as the support of your family. So keep doing what you're doing because it's working. Now, I know we didn't dive too much into the bolts and pieces of what Navadi does today, but I will be sure to make sure that we're linking everything within the show notes here. But if someone wanted to learn a little bit more about how they can learn more about Navadi and bring it into their own workplace, where could they find out more about what you're doing? 
Yeah, best place to go is just our website. It's just navati.com, N-I-V-A-T-I.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Amelia-Wilcox, and I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so happy to to connect with anyone if you want to reach out to me directly as well. And if you get that message from her asking if she knows anyone that's looking to get a new a new message, now you know her strategy over here. But there's something that I always like to close out the episode with because a lot of our listeners are women that are looking to move into the entrepreneurial space. So if you could really look back at yourself 13 plus years ago before you started this business, or even take a look at like who you are today and the advice that you would have needed for that time period, what would you tell someone that's looking to take that first step in their entrepreneurial journey? I think one of the things that would have been helpful for me to understand in the beginning too, is just this like failure isn't failing. (laughs) It's like, it's okay for things to not work and to not just stop. Right. Even like recently we're trying to sell into higher education, student health. And so I'm going to bat and I'm like trying to sell and we like sent out 10 RFPs and like none of the RFPs are coming through. And it doesn't mean like I'm a failure or the business is failing as a whole. It means this experiment has failed. And now we've been able to learn like, okay, this process isn't working. Is there a different way in, or should we actually just be focused on like the staff and faculty side of higher ed and not go after the students? Right. So I think as women, sometimes we feel like we only want to do stuff if we know we won't fail. (laughs) And I think it's important to be okay with failing and learning, like even the business, right? There's been so many times where I've looked at Navadi and I'm like, okay, well, we're trying this thing. And if it doesn't work, like we could go under, we could run out of cash. We could have to shut it down. And it used to be kind of paralyzing to me because I'm like, well, no, I only want to do something if I'm super successful at it. And I've had one of my board members and advisors has had to tell me, he's like, but it's okay. Like if it does fail, you'll either start something else or you can join like any startup would be stoked to have you, right? Like you now have had all of this learning and all of these experiences that are going to make you a good employee or let you found something else. And it took me a really long time to wrap my head around that. Cause I was just like, I'm so unemployable. Like I don't know enough. And like all these other entrepreneurs are better than me and they're winning and they're doing things faster, right? That comparison, which is so dangerous and toxic in the first place. But I think we have to get comfortable with, it's okay if we fail because My husband's favorite quote from Jocko Willink is you either win or you learn. And so just trying to think that way, like failure is okay because you're learning from it. You're growing from it and try things that you might fail at. Don't just go for the things, you know, you'll win at. Right. There's that old saying, like fail forward. I think the biggest thing that I would hate to look back on my life is that never actually trying to move forward to my dreams, never getting started in the first place. I think I'd rather fail than never have ever tried in the first place. So Amelia, thank you so much for taking the time to share your absolutely inspiring story today. I have been blown away by what you've been able to accomplish. So I know our listeners today are going to get so many great, valuable lessons to take away from today. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Amelia's story serves as a powerful testament to her role as a visionary entrepreneur and role model to other women who have dreams for more. She acknowledges that she too experiences fear. However, she doesn't let that stop her from moving forward. Instead, she works through the fears and that has allowed her to have such rich experiences and transform the lives of others. And her advice to you, don't be afraid to try new things. The worst thing that can happen is that it doesn't work, but you walk away learning something new. So let me ask you self-starter, what is it that you're going to try? 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Self-Starter Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. Want even more? Be sure to head to selfstarter.com. And remember, start today for you, start today for her, and become a self-starter. See you next time.